Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. This is by Ajahn Chah. He says, Just try to keep your mind in the present. Whatever arises in the mind, just watch it and let go of it. Don't even wish to be rid of thoughts. Then the mind will return to its natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow, no me and no you, no self at all, just what there is. When you walk in walking meditation, there's no need to do anything special. Simply walk and see what is there. No need to cling to seclusion or needing things to be quiet in order to meditate. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and just watching. If doubts arise, watch them come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It's as though you're walking down the road. Periodically, you will run into obstacles When you meet these obstacles, just see them and overcome them by letting them go. Don't think about the obstacles that you've already passed. Don't worry about those that you've not gotten to see yet. Stick to the present. Don't be concerned about the length of the road or the destination. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, don't cling to it. Eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice is automatic. All things will come and go of themselves. So this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. uh, This practice of letting things come and go. Um, But I first wanted to start with a little bit of stoner philosophy, if y'all will. um, Just let me let me uh, do this here. I was watching, I was on my phone way too late, not practicing good sense restraint last night, not being very mindful of my mind, and YouTube got me. It just hooked me, right? These algorithms of the the videos that they recommend to you are so fucking good. So I was just sitting there about to hang up my phone, went to YouTube for a second and recommended a video, which was a debate between a physicist and a Buddhist scholar, right? And so I promise this is going to be practical, but it's going to sound like some stoner philosophy to start. So um, here we go. The debate was between a guy named Sean Carroll, uh, who is a physicist, and a gentleman named Alan Wallace, who is a Buddhist scholar. And what they were debating was this topic of the nature of reality. So they were debating what is the nature of reality. And I promise that this is going to funnel down into something very practical. Um, But something that I heard from Sean Carroll, the physicist, who's actually the guy that I ended up disagreeing with the most, but um, he said something very interesting about the nature of reality. One of the things he said is that as scientists, there's one thing that we mostly agree on about the nature of reality, which is that reality exists in layers. And so I'll give you an example that he gave. Reality exists in layers. He gave the example of the iPhone. 
And he said that there are many layers of reality to what we call iPhone. Most of us know the iPhone on the layer of reality that we would call the user interface. So we know that it has Google Maps. We know that we can type in our address to Google Maps and it will get us somewhere. We know if you hold the button down, you can talk to Siri, right? We know that the music app is a streaming service and you can subscribe and listen to music whenever you want. So this is one layer of reality that we can know about iPhone. And then he said there are other layers of reality. So him as a physicist also happens to know this layer of reality, which is that the phone, the iPhone, is a collection of elemental particles and forces. So he said that him and his friends could actually write an equation for how the elemental particles and forces that underlie this thing we call iPhone work together. So that's pretty cool. I don't know that shit at all, right? This guy knows these two layers of reality. He knows how to use it for Google Maps to get to where he wants to go, and he knows the elemental composition of all of the forces underneath, right, that make up this thing. He said there's also this intermediary layer of reality to the iPhone, which is what we would call the electronics. This program system of mechanisms we call electronics that work together to make this thing turn on and off and to connect us to you know, our 5G network or whatever it may be. And he said, I don't know anything about this middle layer of reality. So the reason why I bring this up, that there are many layers of reality, is that I think in spiritual traditions, so here's my point, in spiritual traditions, we crave as human beings, I think especially in the West, an omniscient spiritual tradition, which basically means that we crave a spiritual tradition that claims to know every layer of reality. Does that make sense? And the interesting thing about the Buddhist tradition is that he doesn't really talk, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, does not really talk about how much he knows after his awakening. So he doesn't make claims that he knows every layer of reality. He definitely doesn't do that. If you read through the early Buddhist texts, there's no place where he claims to know every layer of reality. He does say that he knows a lot, which will be evident in the sutta I'm about to read. But the point of the Buddha's teaching, this is the important point, is that he says specifically that his teaching, what he teaches, is only a little. So here we are as Westerners. I think we tend to crave a spiritual tradition that's all-knowing, that knows every layer of reality. But here's this Buddhist tradition that's been around for 2,600 years that was founded by a person that claims to have had a really profound experience, but that that experience doesn't necessarily mean he knows every layer of reality. And that in order for you to have that same experience, a spiritual awakening of sorts, you only need to know a very little bit about reality. So there's a sutta called the handful of leaves that I'm going to read that kind of brings this point home. And remember, here the Buddha does say that he knows a lot, but the point of this sutta is that in order to have a spiritual awakening, in order to free yourself from suffering, you only need to know a little bit. So it says, the blessed one was living in Kosambi in the wood of Simsapa 
in, in a wood of Simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand, and he asked the monks, How do you conceive this, monks? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand, or all of the leaves in the trees in the woods? And of course, the monks replied, The leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are but few, but those in the woods are far more. And the Buddha replies, he says, So too, monks, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more like the leaves in the woods. But the things that I have told you and teach to you in order to practice and to realize awakening are only a few. So why have I not told you all of these things? He says, because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the spiritual life. And because they do not lead to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to Nibbana. That is why I have not taught them. And what I have taught you, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the ceasing of suffering. And this is the path that leads to the ceasing of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told you that? Because it brings benefit. It brings advancement in the spiritual life. It brings and leads to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, and to nibbana. So monks, let your task be this, to only know the knowledge of these few leaves, that this is suffering, this is the cause, this is the ceasing, and this is the path that leads to the ceasing. So what the Buddha is saying here is that he may know a lot, but all that we need to know to free ourselves from suffering are these Four Noble Truths. So I think this is quite profound because the Buddha has himself been quoted as saying that he only teaches two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And when we look to our spiritual traditions to know all things, I think that it's unrealistic. I think we have to realize that our spiritual traditions are trying to help us to find more fulfilling ways to live in the world. To find ways to experience freedom from suffering. And this is what the Buddha is saying is the reason why he taught. So what are these things that we need to know? to free ourselves from suffering. In the Buddhist teaching, there are three primary. Uh, they're called the three marks of existence. And they are, I'll go over them. Well, in general, there are aspects of reality that we need to know to free ourselves from suffering. The first is anicca, which means impermanence or inconstancy. And this is a simple truth. So, one of the things we need to know in order to find freedom, to find fulfillment, to find a deeper happiness or peace in life is to know the truth of impermanence, that we live in a world where everything changes as in, and is in flux. The second mark of existence, the second thing that we need to know in order to find freedom, happiness, serenity, peace in this world is to know the truth of dukkha. And the truth of dukkha is related to the truth of impermanence. And that is because we live in a world where everything's changing, everything's in flux, everything's inconstant, we cannot find a permanent satisfaction in anything in our conditioned world. 
because everything's changing, everything's in flux, everything's in motion, everything's impermanent, we can't find a permanent satisfaction in anything that's conditional because it's impermanent. So when we fight with impermanence, when we try to fix, manage, and control things to our liking, we realize that we can only sometimes do so temporarily because things change. And when we run around trying to constantly rearrange the furniture on the Titanic, right? Rearrange the, the conditions to be favorable, eventually the conditions change and we find them unsatisfying. So the goal of the Buddha's path in a way is to help us to stop craving and clinging to impermanent things. To learn how to practice letting go of our grasp and our preferences for things to be a certain way. And to find the freedom to live with the flow of life and its inconstancy. So this may all sound very broad and philosophical and we're going to get down into the practice, right? But the third is anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A, which means not self. And this is the truth that there is no fixed self at the center of consciousness, that there's nothing that we can point to as a permanent, lasting thing that we can identify with as ourselves. I know that I'm not my foot, right? That's my foot. I know that I'm not my eyes. Those are my eyes. I even, through some meditation practice, know that I'm not my mind, My mind thinks when I go to sleep. It's not volitional all the time. My thinking happens. Sometimes there's volitional thoughts. So am I my volitional thoughts? When I look really close, I say, no, I'm not my volitional thoughts either. There's always an intention to think, and then there's a thought. So where am I in all of this? The Buddha is saying that there's no fixed thing. There's no uh, pilot at the center of it. That who you are is a verb, not a noun. You are an influx aggregate of conscious conditions arising and passing away. So this sounds pretty cool, right? This is all of the philosophy of the three marks. But the interesting thing about the Buddhist teaching, remember, is that he's not asking you to intellectually know all layers of reality. He's not even asking you to understand this. What he is asking us to do is to know through direct experience the word in Pali Sanskrit, sampajanya, to clearly comprehend the impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal nature of being human. All right, so now we're getting into the realm of something I feel a little more comfortable with, because now it's like, okay, I need to clearly comprehend through my own experience the impermanent, imperfect, impersonal nature of what it means for me to be a human. And we're going to break this down a little bit, starting with Anicca, impermanence. The truth is everything is constantly in flux and changing. And we know this to be true. I think this is an easy one. There are even bumper stickers that say the only constant is change, right? We know that nothing in this world is permanent. It is all changing. Even on the quantum level, right? So this is pretty interesting in in quantum physics. The theories are that matter is made of atoms, atoms are made of particles. Particles are also constantly in motion and changing. So even at the smallest level, particles show what they call subtle impermanence. 
so they don't remain exactly in the same state from one moment to the next. In the nucleus of a particle, protons and neutrons are constantly exchanging these things called mesons. In the outer layers of the atoms, electrons are never in a single location in their orbitals. They vibrate like a standing wave on a string. So we know that things change, but the Buddha, this is what is interesting, is not interested in making a statement about physical reality. He's not really interested in whether things change out there in the physical world. He's really interested in how you perceive change. And what happens when we fight against impermanence? So he was pointing to how we can learn to embrace the experience of constant change rather than fighting against it. Right On the big level, we're learning to do this with what it means to be in this world as humans and to grow old and to become ill and to get sick, to die, to lose people that we're close to. Right On the big level, we're learning to deal with impermanence on this human level of life and death. And rather than this being a morbid or negative, nihilistic kind of reflection that sometimes Buddhism is is given, it's actually by focusing on this truth that we were reminded to pay attention to what matters most in life. Without death as a constant reflection of the impermanence of our life, we don't necessarily have any urgency to live meaningfully in this world. And this is one of the great paradoxes. The very thing we're scared the most of, the Buddha is saying, really, is the best accelerant for finding a meaningful life, for finding a way to have a spiritual awakening, to live in a fulfilling way in this world. There's a Dharma teacher that passed uh, probably a year or two back named Stephen Levine, and he has a practice some of y'all have heard me talk about called the Year to Live Practice. And the Year to Live Practice is taking this daily reflection that you wake up every day with a countdown of how many days you have left to live, and you start with a year, and it decreases from there. And the reflection is basically this. If you had a year to live, what would you choose to do with your life today? And it's not in a fear-based way of thinking about what would you do today, but what would be important? What amends would you need to make to people? How would you speak or act or treat people, treat yourself, talk to yourself? What activities would you choose to focus your time on? So here, impermanence is a lot different than the physical science. We're not looking at knowing every layer of experience. Are, you know, is my iPhone impermanent? Yes. Cool. But what the Buddha is saying is really learning how to embrace the impermanence of our life. And if we can learn to live with the impermanent flow of our human existence... We don't have to go around the world so blindly. He calls it perpetually wandering. We can live a more meaningful life. We can rise to the occasion. We can have enough urgency to do what's fulfilling, to make the amends we need to make to people and to treat ourselves better. So in this broad sense, impermanence in in a practice form is... um, 
encouraged through something the Buddha calls the five daily reflections. The five daily reflections are, I am subject to aging, I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness, I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death, I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separated, and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, the heir of my actions, born of my actions, and life dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. So not to give you all a ton of just information and lists that the Buddha taught, but I just want to focus on how we started with looking at the nature of reality existing in layers and the Buddha being only interested in one layer, which is the layer of reality that means, do I live a life full of suffering or full of fulfillment? And then we looked at, well, what do we need to know in order to live a life of fulfillment? We need to look at the impermanent nature of our experience as humans, life and death, birth, aging, sickness, loss. And this five daily reflections are a practice. They're a contemplative practice to help us to live that experientially. So if I wake up every day with this five reflections, I'm subject to aging, I'm subject to illness, I'm subject to death, I will become separated from all that is dear to me. The only thing I own are my actions today. What am I going to choose to do with, as Mary Oliver says, this one wild and precious life? So then we look at impermanence and how it ties to the second mark of existence, which is dukkha or dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness. When we deny change, when we fight against change, we suffer always. And I say always because I found this to be really helpful for my practice. Anytime I'm fighting against or reactive towards However things are showing up in my life, I am suffering 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that I have to judge myself when I don't like that something's happening. And we'll get into this with the third mark of existence. But anytime I'm reactive towards something that's showing up in my life, there's suffering. And by being reactive towards, I think it's important to look at what we mean. In particular, we mean craving for pleasant experience, grasping on to pleasant experience, or becoming aversive towards unpleasant experience, resistant. And so any time that I'm being reactive in the sense of pushing or pulling against life on life's terms, however they're showing up, they're suffering. Acceptance basically means coming to terms with the present experience, coming to terms. doesn't mean that we have to like it. It means Tara Brock talks about consenting to the present experience, which I like. She says, you have to say yes to it because it's existing. Even if you don't like it, she says consenting to the present experience doesn't mean that you like it. It means that you're willing to acknowledge that right now it's like this. And this is what it means to embrace dukkha, to open our hearts to the, even the difficult parts, the unpleasant parts of our human experience. 
So dukkha is this unsatisfactoriness that we experience when we fight against impermanence. When we grasp for more pleasant experience, when we want things to be better, things to be different, to be more desirable, more attractive. We want more pleasure, more gain, more praise, more status. But life is, as the Chinese Buddha say, equally 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. There's beauty in life, there's pleasure in life, but there's also pain. There's beauty in life, there's gain in life, but there's also loss. There's praise in life, but there's also blame. There's status and popularity, but there's also disgrace and criticism. And the Buddha is saying that this is just what it means to be human, that there's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And it's when we fight against, when we push and pull against that impermanent, ever-changing conditional reality that we live in, we suffer all the time. So what's the practice here? The practice is to first, and I talk about this a lot, just be honest about the fact that we suffer. One of the great things about this community, one of the things that I love about it, and I hope that y'all love about it, is that we're not afraid to talk about how fucked up we are. We're all walking around with this like, you know, don't know, you know, don't know how much my mind wanders. I don't want you to see how much of a fucking mess I am or how, you know, And it's like, where is that getting us? Deeper and deeper into isolation and separation and comparison and judgment and delusion. And so the first thing the Buddha is asking us to do with dukkha is just to admit that sometimes we're reactive. Sometimes we crave and cling for pleasure experience and we push away unpleasant experiences. You know, sometimes we get lost in reactivity and anger and fear and frustration. They overtake us and we act out. Because Ajahn Chah says if we're unwilling to take a look at our suffering, our reactivity, then we can't really know the cause of it. Carl Jung says if we, we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. One of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, says if you back away from a corner, it just gets darker. So we have to go towards the corner. We've got to go into the basement with the flashlight and just look at all the ways that we suffer. And as we do that, we start to see underneath what it is, is we're fighting against something that we can't control. That's what's causing the suffering. And so we practice by being honest, and then we start looking at our reactivity. And I'll just say this real quick. I talk about it all the time because I think it's the most succinct example of, of how to talk about practicing with reactivity. It's, it's a quote by Viktor Frankl that says, between a stimulus and a response, there's a space. And in that space lies the power to choose your response. And in your choice lies your growth and freedom. So I'll say the quote one more time, break it down for a second, we'll move on. Between a stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies the power to choose your response. In your choice lies your growth and freedom. As we're mindful, think about what we're doing. We're trying to attend to present time experience. We're trying to very intentionally look after the mind. The Buddha calls this yonaso manasikara, which means careful attention. We're trying to carefully watch our attention. And as you do that, 
you can start to notice these moments where your reactivity is arising, not your reactivity, the reactivity is arising in your mind. You can start to notice when craving arises. You're sitting on the couch, you know, and you're thinking, ah, see what the X is up to. I'm feeling kind of lonely. And in an unmindful way, we just go out into the habit and we just, bam. How many times do we text the ex, hook up with the ex, and then regret the text, right? All the time. But why do we keep doing these things? The Buddha's saying it's not because you're fucked up. He's saying because you're not being mindful. You're not seeing that your mind is promising something that you're not going to get. That's not going to actually be permanently satisfying. It's not going to cure your loneliness. It may temporarily make you feel better. Let's be real. But it's not going to cure the underlying reason why we're acting on it. And so we have to practice this thing Viktor Frankl said. Before we pick up the phone and send the text, before the stimulus, right? Before our reaction to the stimulus, I should say, the loneliness... There's a space. And in that space, we get the power to choose. We get the opportunity to come in and say, oh, I'm feeling very lonely right now. I notice that I want company. And how we get to contemplate, what is the wise response? What is it going to get me if I play the tape through? What is it going to get me if I text, if I hook up? I'm just using this as an example. I think it's a very relatable one, hopefully. Or... What is it like if I practice something more skillful? Not because it's good or bad or right or wrong, but because I know it leads to my welfare and happiness. How am I going to go feel if I go hang out with my homie Chris tonight and we just spend some time chilling as friends? I'm not going to feel as much attention and as much sexual gratification with my friend, but I will probably feel a little bit more at ease, right? And so this is what we mean by... Using mindfulness to see clearly into the nature of reactivity and to try to respond more wisely, to practice more skillfully in our world. So we've got anicca, impermanence. When we fight against it, dukkha. When we crave and cling for things to be different than how they are, dukkha. How do we work with dukkha? Be honest about it, slow down, be mindful, and watch how we can engage. All right, last thing I'm not going to go into too much depth is the uh, mark of existence called anatta, not self, selflessness, sometimes called emptiness in Mahayana traditions. Interesting thing I learned recently, actually, that early Buddhism doesn't really focus on anatta that much. It focuses a lot more on how grasping and aversion cause suffering. And so anatta is really more of a focus Mahayana Buddhism And in a way, it's a related but a little bit of a deeper insight that we develop through practice. And I don't mean deeper. It's really tricky to say something like that because it, for me, if you say something's deep, I think, oh, it's esoteric. It's hard to understand. It's complex. Like once I practice long enough, I'll get it. You know, it's not like that. It's like how, I don't know, learning a a language is complex. You know, like you've got to really be in it and and experience it and see the expressions, all the degrees of it to really have an intimate knowledge of it. You know what I mean? So anatta is something like this. It's just it's just like uh, a different way of seeing the world. 
So the best way I can describe this is because all experience is impermanent, constantly in flux, right? That means that there's no fixed or permanent self. That even this thing we call self is just a construct. On a relative level, yes, I have a self. I'm Andrew Chapman, Buddhist meditation. Uh, I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher. I like punk rock and rap music. You know, I have a family. I have a daughter uh, and a wife. You know, these are things that I can tell you about myself. And so, this is not the Buddha's not saying that that's not a helpful tool to have this relative sense of self. But he's saying that if you really look closely, this thing that you call yourself is really just a concept. It's a narrative that's been constructed. And so who you are is not a permanent thing, but you're really an identity that's constantly changing. The narrative's constantly changing as you move throughout your life, right? Who I thought I was when I was 18, this is a really easy example. Who I thought I would become and what I wanted to do with my life, let's say when I was 15, is a lot different than what I'm doing now. If you would have told me, Andrew, you're going to be a Buddhist meditation center in Nashville, Tennessee, I would have told you you're fucking high. And I probably would have been high with you at the time, right? So our identity changes as we gather more experience. Who you are is not a noun, you're a verb. Why is this important? So this will be the last thing I share. Brene Brown calls it self-made stories. We are largely dependent upon the narrative that we draw ourselves of ourselves in our mind. So we're largely dependent upon the narrative that we draw of ourselves in our mind. Brene Brown says, Of no fault of our own, the mind often attempts to keep us safe by becoming overly concerned with our status and about what people think. About always being better than, always being right. She says, I think of this part of my mind as my inner hustler. It's always telling me to compare, to prove, to please, to perfect, to outperform, and to compete. The inner hustler has a shame-based fear of being ordinary. The hustler has very little tolerance for discomfort and self-reflection, which is a willingness to challenge the self-made stories. Without active awareness, she says, mindfulness, the mind doesn't take responsibility for the stories it's telling nor does it have any interest in writing new endings to them. It denies emotion, it hates curiosity. If unattended, the mind will quickly use stories as armor and alibi. Avoiding truth and vulnerability are critical parts of the hustle. So hopefully y'all can relate. Do we know what we're talking about when we say these self-made stories? The narratives and the stories that we tell about ourselves, about how we measure up, whether we're good or bad or equal to, this self-centered way of thinking. And when we say self-centered, the hard thing for me is that I used to take this as a judgment. I used to think people thought that I was like childish, narcissistic, just self-involved person. But self-centered basically just means that we relate to the world from this story that we have about ourselves. And what the Buddha is saying is that that story about yourselves is not the only truth. It's just a story that the mind tells you about who you are. And what is really interesting as we practice mindfulness, we can start to see how the story of ourself changes largely dependent upon events and feelings in the moment. So I'll give you an example. When conditions are favorable, we tend to think really highly of ourselves. 
you know, I remember um, after I graduated from my master's program, I felt a sense of relief. I never, never had to go to fucking school ever again, right? I felt a lot of confidence. I ended up getting a good job. I ended up being able to support myself. I made more money. I made double the amount of money that I made before graduate school within a year or two after graduate school. And during that time of my life, I was like, my practice was working, you know, Buddhism, it saved my ass and got me into school and I'm making money. The conditions were favorable, right? So I was just like, man, I got this shit figured out. And then shortly after we had a baby, right? And I started to have to, uh, and I say have to, because I had to learn how to sacrifice a lot of these things that had brought me a lot of joy. So I had to learn how to be responsible and to fight my way through a sleepless night and to work the next day and to come home when my body's in pain and twirl my daughter around and play with her. And so I experienced this kind of rude awakening where my sense of self was largely dependent upon the conditions. And I was doing good when things were good and I was doing bad when things were bad. The Buddha is saying, this is a delusion. He says, things are just good sometimes and things are just bad sometimes. When we want to change how things are, when we want to fix, manage, and control them, sure, if we can a little bit, that's fine. But if we get overly involved in morphing things to our liking, we cause a lot of suffering because we start to fight with reality. And if we attach an identity, a sense of self to that, we suffer even more. So one way to look at this is that um, over the course of our lives, who we are changes. Heraclitus, I believe, was a Stoic. He said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. No person ever steps in the same river twice. For it is not the same river and they are not the same person. Who we are is a a process. We're a person in change, in flux. In meditation, when you practice on the subtle level, because I did it with the other ones, I'll do it with this real quick. When you're noting experience, you're not saying, I am mad, I am restless, I am not focused, I am in pain. You just say, there is restlessness. Oh, there's restlessness. What is it like to feel restless? to have restlessness be in the mind and in the body. You don't say, I am uh, not meditating right. You say, oh, there is confusion in the mind. You see how much more subtle that is, but more simple? Instead of making a story about how I'm not good at meditating, you actually just get to know, oh, confusion or agitation. So um, these are some of my thoughts on... Anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. And the encouragement, remember, here is that the Buddha says we want to know these things directly through our experience. So what I want to hear from you all today, if, if you're open to it, is just ways in which these three things are maybe showing up in your life. You know, how has imper- impermanence affected you, right? How is it affecting us all as a society right now? 
you know, or how is uh, our, our, our kind of resisting the change it's causing suffering as a society? That's a great thing to look at right now. You know, how in our personal lives is resisting change causing suffering or clinging after things that we don't have, right? So all of these things, um, how do we take things personally? What are our narratives of ourselves? How do we challenge that? These are some of the things we can talk about. Plenty of time. We've got about 15 minutes.